0: open up your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Samuel 12. If you're still learning your way around the Bible, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. 2 Samuel's in the Old Testament. The Old Testament starts with Genesis. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, keep going. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 12. Now, in 2 Samuel, a guy named David had, had already taken the position of king and, you know, and God had been good to him. The favor of God was upon his life. But at some point, David got, uh, he got into an adulterous relationship with a lady named Bathsheba. And so, uh, you know, and he was, uh, all of these things were taking place. Eventually, she got pregnant because of him. And uh, then, you know, David went about to try to, to try to, you know, hide his sin and make it look like her husband was the one that was responsible when he was unsuccessful at that. Then he put her husband in a place that was like, uh, you know, uh, very put him in a, a place of mortality as far as up front on the battle lines, and he ended up dying. And So really, David was a partner in a murder. And so, I mean, just these horrible things had taken place. And so, I don't know whether he thought that, oh, okay, finally I've gotten away with this or whatever, but God's correction showed up. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after all this had taken place, verse 1, it says this. So listen, so the Lord sent Nathan. Everybody say, the Lord sent Nathan. Nathan. So in other words, God sent somebody into his life to say something. The Lord sent Nathan. He wasn't just there on his own. He wasn't just there because he knew of something that was going on. The Lord personally sent Nathan. It goes on to say here, The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. So Nathan tells him the story, man, it elicits this emotional response from David. David. And you're like, why did he get so emotional? I mean, was it just the injustice alone? Well, that was enough, right? But, but consider David's background. Before David was king, he was a shepherd. He knew what it was like to take care of sheep, to have to be one responsible for leading them and protecting them and caring for them. So it was a very personal thing to him that somebody would be so indifferent, so insensitive, somebody that didn't need any of that to respond that way, that he was like, that guy deserves the harshest punishment. And so Nathan responds when David says that. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. And he goes through the rest of that. And the truth of the matter is is that he was correcting David, that the Lord sent Nathan to David's life to correct him. Now, When we study history a little bit, that this wasn't their first encounter, that they they knew each other. God didn't just send somebody into his life that was just kind of this anonymous person that just kind of showed up one day and said, hey, I'm going to tell you what's going on in your life that's not right. No, man, the Lord sent Nathan into his life. In other words, they had this relationship already, so it was a trusted voice. It was a voice of somebody that was proven in his world. Isn't it wild that sometimes that God could send somebody into our world, into a moment to correct us? It's not always pleasant, is it? It's not always fun. As a matter of fact, you know, just by nature, we're averse to it. I think this generation, you know, and I mean, just from the things I read, the things I see, maybe more so than any generation, as a matter of fact, that, that we've tried to label the corrector as the villain. Well, hey, you can't judge me. Who are you to judge me? When the truth matters, sometimes people do come into our lives and they are harsh and judgmental, but sometimes just because it's uncomfortable, doesn't mean that it's not God's sent. I mean, I'm not talking about the harsh and judgmental ones, but even sometimes when people are honest with us about the areas that we're struggling in, sometimes God's put them in our lives to correct us. It's never pleasant. You know, when I was growing up as a child, the people that were the most corrective in my life were my parents. Proverbs says this, it says that if you spare the rod, you hate your child. My parents loved me. They loved me often. And I deserve to be loved often. And I mean, you know, and it was, I remember when I was a little guy and I was at the dentist and they said, um, you, know, I, you know, I bet your, you know, your dad is really good to you. And I said, well, he is, except when he gives me spankings. And so, and the lady said, she goes, well, that's just because he loves you. And to my little mind, that made no sense at all. I'm like, well, then God, let him help me, help him love me a little less. I mean, <laughs> it's, how it, it's how it felt. Because again, correction is never comfortable It's never good. And you think about that. It really is what it is. It's correction. In other words, my behavior or my attitude or my thoughts have begun to get me off path, off of the way that I'm supposed to go. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes I read the word and it speaks to me and it corrects me. I I look at it and it begins to share things to me and I get convicted and it pulls me back. Not condemned, convicted. Condemned says I'll never measure up. I may as well give up. You're not any good. You're worthless. Conviction says no, 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 that's not for you this way and so sometimes I'm praying and on the inside when I'm praying I just know on the inside my knower knows you know your knower it knows you know that just what I'm doing is not okay it's it's not right and and so he'll just correct me he'll get me back on course it's this correction but then sometimes man he puts people in my life and they have conversations with me that are hard for them and sometimes they're uncomfortable for me and sometimes he has me do that. And I, you know, my personality, I hate doing that. But God puts people in our lives sometimes and it's his voice. But it's, he's using their voice to speak to us through. And it's real easy to get offended. It's real easy to kind of brush our hands off of them. It's really easy to try to walk away and who do they think they are? But if we're not careful, sometimes we miss, we miss that opportunity. You don't have to turn there, but... Hebrews 12 says this, says our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline, God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. Now listen to what it says here, no discipline is enjoyable while it is happening, right? I mean, it's never fun to have to be corrected in any way, but especially when somebody's sitting down with us and saying, hey, I want to talk to you about something. That's never fun. It's, it's never enjoyable for that moment. It's a matter of fact, it says it's painful, but afterward, ever say afterward. Afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. In other words, as uncomfortable as it is in that moment, if we respond like we're supposed to, it corrects us and gets us back on course. And in time, man, there's a good harvest of peace that comes in our life. I've hardly ever sweated doing the right thing. I haven't lost sleep over, well, I I was really tempted to do this bad thing, but I did this good thing. I sure hope I can go to sleep tonight. I've never had that conversation. On the other hand, there have been times where it's like, you know, my my heart was saying, no, 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 don't do that, do this, this is right. And my flesh was saying, we're going to do this. And there are times I listened to my flesh, and I can remember laying in bed at night thinking, why did I do that? And sometimes know that there are going to be consequences dealing with people that I was going to dread having those consequences. But we look a lot of times at correction. We shun from it. Our flesh shuns from it because it is so uncomfortable. But I think we lose sight of this. What he said in Hebrews, he said, our earthly fathers disciplined us. And if you look at that thing in all of the context, what he's saying is is that discipline or correction is a byproduct of relationship. That God sends people into our life not because he's through with us, but he's preparing us for what he has prepared for us. That those uncomfortable conversations, they should give us joy and hope in this. God must not be finished with me. As bad as what I've done is, he hasn't given up on me. That he's still for me. That he's sending people into my life to correct me and help me. And therefore, I know that he cares about me. Man, when people come into your life, especially if they have a relationship with you and they love you, then those are the people that you just realize that God's using them. And you know what gives people like that? Credibility. It's when they respond in a healthy way to correction. When they can receive it themselves. Because all of us have areas in our life that God's dealing with us about. And for whatever reason, he deals with those things differently. But at some point in our life, there's going to be some time that there's going to be a Nathan coming to our world. And sometimes we're going to be the Nathan for God into their world. To speak to them and share with them. Number one is this. Is that God uses people to bring correction to us. Look at Acts chapter 11. Let's go to point number two, Acts chapter 11. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Acts 11. Acts 11 verse 22, some great things were taking place in the church. And in verse 22, it says this, it says, when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, He was filled with joy and he encouraged. Everybody say he encouraged. He encouraged encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. So here's Barnabas, that he was sent there by the church, he was sent there as God's hand. This move of God was taking place in Antioch, and so when he went there, it says this about him, that he encouraged them in the Lord, and a lot of people got born again. His presence there, his encouragement, that he was God's voice to encourage them. You know, so many times, you know, I don't think we realize, but you can be an encourager and be the voice of God in somebody's life. Man, we live in a society that has just isolated itself and pulled itself away from people that sometimes, you know, so many people are the walking wounded in what they do and are just thirsting for one word of encouragement, one word of God loves you, one word of God has a plan for you in his life. I remember several years ago that, or actually when I shared with you my story that in my 20s for several years, I was struggling with depression and it was just such a hard season of my life. And I was going to Bible school and I was serving at a church. And this tells you how long it was ago. Back then, in church, almost everybody wore suits and ties and that type of thing. Thank God those days are over. But anyway, so so we had that. And the ushers that they had they had a closet. There's an usher's closet and they had sport coats. So you would like if you were gonna serve, you'd show up in black pants, a white shirt, and a black tie, and they would say, Okay, we're wearing the red jackets tonight. And so we'd put on those red jackets and then you come in the next week, okay, we're in the blue jackets, okay, we're in the tan jackets. And so all those things going on. So I remember that night we were serving and uh, I, think, I think we had the blue jackets on and, and man, it was just my mind was just felt, felt so overwhelmed. I mean, depression was on me so strong. And I, but I knew I was called there to serve, and so I was doing everything I can to, to still give a smile. Even I didn't feel like smiling, I wanted to give a smile. Somebody said, oh, well, you were just acting. No, man, I was, I was serving. I was serving. And I wanted to encourage people, and yet in my head, man, I just felt hopeless. And I thought, no, I'm going to persevere. I can, I still am, I'm still in charge of the choices I make. I'm still in charge of the decisions I make. And so I continued to do what I needed to do and I I would serve, but man, by the end of the night, I was just, you know, I, I I was going back there. I was kind of ready to take that jacket off and just, you know, just go be alone. And I remember there was a guy there that I was ushering with. He just said this simple phrase. He just looked at me and he goes, hey, we walk in complete victory. And for you, that may not mean anything. It was just such a simple statement. But for me, it was a God statement. It was as if the Lord had appeared to me in person and wanted to remind me, that we walk in victory, that this dark place that I'm in will not define my life. I remember when I first started doing student ministry, we were in Clovis, New Mexico, and there was two kids that were coming, their parents were divorced, and so he would come spend the summer there uh, with one of his parents and his grandmother, and his grandmother would bring him to church, and he was in our youth group, and he was like 12 or 13 years old, and so a lot of times back then, like I, I said, I would say to the kids that came, I, so I said to him and his sister, I said, Hey, you guys, I want to get to know you better. You know, let's, let's go do something. Let's go, let's go to 31 flavors or, or something. And just, I want to just get to know you, you know, bring somebody with you. And so, uh, um, so we went to our thing and, and uh, as you know, and I remember that um, as he and I were talking that I just had this thought in me and it just seems like such just kind of a normal thing that, you know, it doesn't even feel like a God thing. But as, you know, as, as he was leaving, I said to him, I said, hey, man, I just want you to know that, that God, God loves you and he's not mad at you. And I thought, that's kind of a weird thing to say to a 13-year-old, right? You ever tell a 13-year-old, hey, God's not mad at you. And afterwards, I'm kind of like, I, you know, you kind of look at yourself like, why did I say that? That was kind of stupid. And so, you know, you know he was just 13. I mean, we start having those thoughts when we're, when we're 20-something on, right? And so I didn't think anything about it. Well, years later, decades later, I hear him telling a story. And he's sharing that before he was like 11 years old, he'd been molested a couple of different times by men. And he thought that that had happened because God was mad at him. That there was something about him. In other words, he didn't realize that that wasn't God. That was the devil that was using these people to bring destruction into his life. And so he said, when he met me, he thought thought anytime that he met any new men, that that just meant that this was going to be another horrible situation. And instead of it not being that, and me just looking at him and saying... This boy that had thought that these bad things were happening because God was mad at him to look at him and go, God's not mad at you. I mean, I thought I was just making a statement, but no, that nudge to encourage him spoke to a broken place in his life. I think so many times, man, we underestimate the power of those moments. We we underestimate this, how just significant they can be in the life of an individual, They're just so powerful. Don't ever resist that urge to be an encourager. And sometimes, even in correction, we can encourage. That the reason why God's having us have this conversation, because he's not through with them, that he's steering them back on course because of what he has for them. To be an encourager in that way, man, there's just something supernatural and powerful about that moment. You know, when I hear about moments like that and stories like that, it bugs me that there have been times where I've had those thoughts. And I thought, "Nah, I'm not going to do that. Eh, You know, that's just kind of dumb. That's just silly. Of course he's for them. Of course he's going to do that. And so I've I've resisted it. And when I look think about those moments right there, then I'm like, man, what opportunity did I miss? I I think this is interesting. You don't have to turn there, but it's interesting in Acts chapter 4. That there was this move of God that was taking place and people were giving, you know, towards the work of God. And it says in verse 36, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas. So this Barnabas we're talking about, that wasn't even his real name. His real name was Joseph. You're like, Joseph, why would they call him Barnabas? Because it means son of encouragement. He was such an encourager that they wanted to give him a name that would identify that you know when this guy's in your presence, he's going to be an encourager. When this great move of God was taking place, that the one that they send down there was not the guy that was going to be harsh and, you know, judgmental with him, but they send the guy down there that's going to be an encourager, and it said that the work of God flourished as a result of it. I mean, don't we feel that way? Don't we love when people show up, and they're not just trying to, you know, not just trying to, you know, just you know, give us a snow job or anything like that. They're they're genuinely encouraging us that there's something, they're not looking for personal gain or to manipulate us or to fool us, but they're genuinely by faith calling out the things in us that they see that maybe haven't developed yet, but they're lying there waiting for that moment for us to step out in obedience to God and let him do a work in us that only he can do and through us that only he can do. And sometimes when those people come up with that voice, That it's not not them speaking. God's using their voice to speak into our world and to speak into our life and reveal things to us. And sometimes it's not just people coming up into our world and being that voice. Sometimes it's you coming up into other people's world and being that voice. Encouragement is powerful. And God speaks to us through that voice, through people's voices in our life, that from a sincere heart, Move by faith, move by vision, move by the Holy Spirit and the things that they see. Say those things in our life that encourage us and reveal those things to us. And so, number two, if you're taking notes, is this is that God uses people to encourage us. And he uses you, uses me to encourage other people. It's it's what he does, it's a thing that he does, that he encourages us in that way. Don't you love encouragers? Don't you love to be encouraged? How many of you love to be encouraged? Let me see your hand right now. Let me see your hand. Hey, if somebody doesn't have their hand up, that means they're not paying attention to their asleep. Wake them up. Oh, hey, hey, hey. You need to listen to this. We all love to be encouraged, man. And so God uses people to do that. Let's look at number three and we'll close with this. Go with me if you would to Acts 9. Acts 9. Now, in Acts 9, there was a guy named, a guy named Saul. And uh, he was, we call it, you know, he was, he was on the, Saul of Tarsus he was not a Christian at this moment. He became a Christian after this incident that we're going to read about here. And he was going around destroying churches, having Christians arrested, had some Christians killed. He was, he was religious, and religious people can be really mean. He didn't have a relationship with Jesus. He was religious. And so... He was doing that. And so he has this encounter with Jesus. He's on the road to Damascus. He's going to go to Damascus. He has, he has permission to disrupt Christians, to sell their families, to all sorts of things. And so in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, it says this. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he's on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And all of a sudden he sees a light. Now, later on, he says that not everybody saw the light, but they heard the voice. So he sees a light and he hears the voice and he says, why are you persecuting me? And then the, and then this is what Saul's response. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, just kind of as a side thought, I think it's interesting that all these things that Saul was doing to Christians that Jesus took very personally, he said, why are you persecuting not them, but why are you persecuting me? So if you're going through a hard place right now because you're a Christian, because you're a Christ follower, if you're going through a hard place at your job, at your school, in your circle, in your family. Just know this, that the Lord's not sitting back indifferent to it. It's a very personal thing to him. He sees it. It's as if they're doing it not just to you, but to him also. That's how personally he takes it for you. And so, then he said this, Saul asked, and the voice replied, I'm Jesus, one you're persecuting. Now listen to this. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This kind of blows me away. Jesus is having this conversation with him, and if there's more he needs to know about his relationship with God, about, you know, that he's going to pray for him, and, and uh, that something happened to his eyes here, he's going to help, help him with that, and all that kind of stuff as we read later. But I'm like, why didn't Jesus just tell him? I mean, he's got his attention. The guy's falling on the ground. He went blind all of a sudden. This is a great time to talk to him. Well, two things I've discovered one is, I'm not God. And two is he knows more than I do. And so, I mean, those are two great truths for the rest of you to embrace as well. And so, but here's the thing is, is that for whatever reason, and then Jesus is leading of him, that he was going to send him to a place and have somebody, have a human being share with him, a person, an imperfect, still growing, does dumb things, sometimes Person. I've tried to disqualify myself on more than one occasion that I would do something that was dumb or stupid. And yet, here the Lord is using an imperfect person just like me. Romans 10 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Like the most important message that we as believers have is to tell them about Jesus. Isn't it wild the most important thing that you can tell anybody about is about Jesus and about who he is and what he's done? To give them an opportunity about where they're going to spend eternity at. I mean, you think such a significant thing that that God would not have trusted Rick Burke with that. Because I know me. I got mad last night and it wasn't for anything spiritual. I got mad cause the Sooners lost. I was so, I was watching the football game and I was so angry and I'm, I'm mad. I'm trying to, I'm just trying to, you know, just kind of chill and be cool and, and I love my wife. She's really good, but, but she came up to me with like a minute left and she showed me baby pictures of my oldest son, David. The game's on, I'm watching the game. I mean, it's feeling like we're gonna lose, but I've seen football games, things happen in the last minute, and, and here he is in the bathtub. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah that's, that's really good. And so, you know, and, so, and so, after about seven or eight pictures, she's like, Oh, I guess you're not ready to watch these pictures right now. And so, so the game is over, they lose, and I very lovingly, you can just picture this in your mind, go, I'll, Okay, show me pictures now. I mean, baby pictures, potluck pictures, any pictures you have. I wanna see them all right now, okay? And she looks at me and she goes, It's not my fault that they lost. And I said, I said, no, but it is your fault that you're unaware of how important this is to me. She goes, well, I didn't know it mattered to you that much. I'm like, do you know who you're married to? I mean, <laughs> so we have this moment. And then, you know, like in, in 12 hours or somewhere like that, I'm gonna be in front of people ever having this. And I mean, you're just getting like the warm up. I mean, it was, it was a main card setting last night at the Burke household. Cause I was, you know, I was so frustrated with them and they weren't there and they didn't know who I was. So I might as well take it out on my wife. And so, you know, the thing about this, So, you know, you have that moment of just that, and then you get here and you're like, God, are you sure you want to use me? I mean, you saw that, right? I mean, you saw what an idiot I was over a football game. Really? That's your plan? It is. Some of you are low your head right now. You had a similar, similar situation at your house last night. You know, and he, that's his plan. He uses our voice to declare his message, not through perfect vessels, through yielded ones. He's not looking for perfect vessels. He's looking for yielded vessels surrendered that will say in our brokenness, and in our imperfection, like, "I don't get it. I don't know why you would use me." but you do." So we become his voice to somebody else's life. We, I think we just have to get this as the church. You know, it's it's one of the big concerns I have that that one of the reasons why you know it, there's like over hundred and some countries, and like eighty percent of those countries, somewhere around in there, the church that there are more people becoming Christians than that are being born into that nation. And there's only like fifteen or twenty nations where there are more people being born than are becoming Christians. And sadly, the U.S. is in that category. And I think it's because as a church, we're not careful. We lose sight of the main thing our voice was created for besides praising and worshiping God. But that's declaring his his hope, his relationship, what he desires, what his heart is for people. People matter to him. And sometimes, you know, in, in in my immaturity, in my own brokenness, in my own insecurity... And all of those things, I do things, and my immediate thought that that the enemy wants to put in my mind is that disqualifies me, and yet God's called me, knowing better than anyone else who he's called, who I am. He wants to use you as a Christ follower, your voice. He, He wants to ask you if you'll loan him your voice to speak into somebody's life, to declare who Jesus is, and that he so loved the world that he gave his own that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have life everlasting he could have chosen the angels to declare this but he didn't he could have chosen all sorts of ways to declare it and yet his plan was to use broken not not mature dead people like me and you trophies of his grace declarations of his goodness to share who he is. And what better picture would it be than somebody that has messed up to declare the goodness of God that he loves me even in my dumb places. That you're his voice to declare who Jesus is. To bring that message of hope to humanity. And when the church forgets that as one of their main missions, is it any wonder that the church begins to decline? But that's not who we are. We know who Jesus is. We've lived and we're experiencing His goodness and what He can do in a life that's transformed, that's been surrendered to His lordship, and trust Him with our life. And then when we blow it, we don't stay down, we get back up and ask Him to forgive us, and we move forward. And when we understand that, we begin to be not perfect vessels, but yielded vessels, trophies of His grace. And it's His plan. I hear so, you know, and I want us to be stirred up in that. And yet in other places of the world, I hear these great stories. In the Middle East, I'm hearing over and over again of stories of people that aren't Christians. Sometimes people that are are Muslims that that they'll have dreams. And in this dream will be a Middle Eastern man that begins to speak to them. And he'll tell them, hey, look, go to this place, talk to this person, and they're going to share things with you. And over and over again, they'll go and they'll begin to go to that very place and they begin to talk to this person that's a Christian. And the more they begin to share, they realize that the person in the dream or the vision that was talking to them was Jesus. I mean, it's just interesting. You should Google it. It's just happening over and over again in different parts of the world. My friend Tony Cook, he uh, he and I were talking about this the past week and he sent this to me. He sent this. Um, He sent this email to me of something that happened to him in Turkey in the early 2000s. He said this, My interpreter in this predominantly Muslim nation had come to Christ through a most fascinating means. He shared with me that he had been a Muslim and was desirous to know God more. He had a sense that there was more to God than what he had been taught. One night he had a dream and a man dressed in white told him to go to a certain address. He went the next day and he said that after work and he had been told to come to that location. He received a warm welcome when he got there and was invited into the house. The resident advised him that they were just about to watch a new movie they had received by some of their other friends, and he was welcome to join them. This involved the old-fashioned reel-to-reel type of film that was that was projected against the screen or or the wall. The movie they were showing was the Jesus film. I think it was by Campus Crusade for Christ put it out around then. And when the Jesus character came on the screen, the individual was so moved that he jumped up and proclaimed, that's the man from my dream. They had to calm him down so that he and the others could watch the rest of the movie. And at the conclusion, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And years later, when Tony met him, he was still serving the Lord to this day. Well, why didn't Jesus in the dream tell him? Not because he couldn't, but because for whatever reason, his plan is to include us in the declaration of the most important thing that any person could ever hear. And that is that Jesus died for your sins, and he rose from the dead. And when you make him, declare him as Lord of your life and surrender and receive what he's done, you become a child of God and you're forgiven and made a new creature in Christ. He uses imperfect vessels like me and you. It's the way that he speaks to us. He uses people in our life to bring correction sometimes. He sends people in our, sometimes he sends us into their lives and lovingly correct them. Sometimes he sends us in in their lives to encourage them, to tell them to not give up, to get back up. I was so frustrated in a situation a while back and the Lord dealt with me. I was ready just, and I just know he dealt with me. I had these God thoughts where he said, you be careful in how you deal with them. They're carrying so many wounds around right now. Don't you be harsh in your dealing. And it just spoke to me. I wrote it down. Because it impacted the way that I was going to go to them, the way my correction was going to be. And it was going to be not, it was going to be harsh instead of encouraging. So I got to be his voice. And we get to be his voice when we carry this message into the lives of other people. I want you to do this. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute. I want us just to spend a moment with God. And, and it is yielded. I mean, that our voice, we use it for so much of our life, you know. And, and uh, just, it's just so much a part of who we are and what we do. And what would our life be like? How, how would it be used by God if we surrendered it? If we surrendered it to God, to his purpose, to his plan. I just want us to take a moment and just do that, just yield our voices to him. And when he calls us to be a voice of correction or encouragement, or he calls us to carry the good news of who Jesus is into someone's life that we're yielded to that. Let's just spend a moment with God.